You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Rick Brennan. Rick is the Regional Emergency Director for WHO's Regional Office for the Eastern Mediterranean based in Cairo, Egypt. Previously, he had spent seven years at WHO headquarters as Director of Emergency Operations, Director of Ebola Coordination and Response, and Director of Emergency Risk Management and Humanitarian Response. We're going to focus overwhelmingly today on the catastrophe unfolding in Afghanistan. We'll talk about COVID and the COVID response, but also a full range of other issues, especially pertaining to the to the risk of collapse of the Sahat Mundi health project that sustains 2,300 facilities inside Afghanistan. Thank you, Rick, so much for joining us today. Andrew Schwartz cannot be with us today and sends his regrets. Um, we've had the great fortune to enlist Lynn Rubenstein, a close friend and collaborator and professor of the practice at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health and director of the program on human rights, conflict and health. He's the author of the recently published volume, Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. He founded and chairs the Safeguarding Health in Conflict Coalition and for a very long time has tracked, as we'll hear in this conversation today, tracked the health sector within Afghanistan and the many complexities that have entered the history of that sector going back in recent decades. Recently, Len and I published a commentary, a CSIS commentary, which you can easily find. The title is Pulling Afghanistan Back from the Precipice Without Capitulation. And this conversation today with Dr. Rick Brennan grows out of that earlier work. Rick, let's get started by asking you to, to talk a bit about your own personal background, your own personal story. What was the path that led you from medical training in Sydney, Australia, to Atlanta, Georgia, CDC, to working for the International Rescue Committee, in New York for 10 years as director of operations to two and a half years in Liberia, working with JSI and then on to Geneva in emergency operations and now Cairo. Tell us a little bit about your own, your own personal story. It's quite interesting, it's quite unusual. Yeah, th- thanks very much. Well, I trained as an emergency physician in Australia in those days, back, that was back in the 1980s. And in those days, emergency medicine was a, a brand new specialty in Australia. And then I came to the U.S. and uh, did a fellowship, a research and uh, clinical fellowship. Went back to Australia and was director of residency training and director of research at Australia's largest trauma center. And during a period of about 18 months, I did three uh, volunteer missions to go to Bosnia during the war in the early 90s. And I got, you know, very interested in humanitarian action. And a number of my colleagues there that I met had their public health degrees. And, you know, as an emergency physician, I had no clue about public health. So I resigned my job. I I thought, well, you know, I'd like to pursue a career in this area. 
And I resigned my job and not knowing anything about public health, I, I came back to the US, was accepted for my MPH at Johns Hopkins, where I was exposed to some great people like Professor Paul Spiegel, who was a classmate, but also connected with uh, colleagues at, at the CDC at the time and uh, became much more interested in a career in national health. Cut a long story short, I, I, I got a temporary assignment with uh, the CDC during the Atlanta Olympics. They kept me on, and actually I ended up being seconded to a unit in Hawaii, uh, of all places, run by the very well-known Skip Burkle, the Center of Excellence for Disaster Management and Humanitarian Assistance. And I was the CDC secondee there for two years, working closely with the U.S. military on humanitarian action and civil-military relations, CBRN issues, and so on. And then, very fortuitously, I, I was subsequently uh, asked to do a review of the health programs of the International Rescue Committee and design a health program for them while I was still working with the CDC. I was so impressed by the organization, I applied to be the director of their newly established health unit and uh, stayed there for 10 years. Perhaps the best professional experience of my life, wonderful decade in New York, you know, running a team that provided uh, technical and operational support to humanitarian programs in 25 countries. From there, I went to Liberia, as you mentioned, with JSI Research and Training. Um, it was a great time to be in Liberia. It was just emerging from years of civil war. They had a, a new rock star president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who subsequently won the Nobel Peace Prize. The health uh, minister at the time was regarded as perhaps being the best in Africa. And we ran this big post-conflict health system reconstruction project funded by USAID, and I was the head of that project. It was a wonderful experience. And then the idea of that program was to hand over everything to the Liberian staff, which we did after two and a half years. And then I got picked up to go and run the humanitarian department at WHO in Geneva. And um, on the back of, you know, a couple of years later, you know, actually four years later after the Ebola response, WHO decided to integrate its disease outbreak health security team with its humanitarian team. And I was the director of emergency operations there for about within that new program of uh, health emergencies. And I stayed in that role as director of emergency operations for about another two and a half years before coming here to Cairo to be the regional emergency director. So I'm sorry, that's a bit of a long story, but... It's an amazing pathway. Len, you've been studying emergency medicine and conflict in medicine. I mean, it sounds like Rick's pathway has sort of coursed through all of the major zones of the last 20 years. Yeah, in fact, I was in Liberia uh, just as Rick was beginning to work on that program. And of course, at the time, there was an enormous amount of optimism with the charismatic leader, the health minister, Walter Guinagalli. And then I worked with Rick at WHO on the program to track incidents of violence against healthcare. So our paths have crossed uh, many times. So Rick, tell us, just give our listeners, our listeners a better idea about what exactly are you empowered to do? What's the mission there in Cairo for the Eastern Mediterranean Regional Office? So you've got a big job, but tell us a little bit about how you operate and what do you have at your disposal in terms of tools to address these crises? We actually cover 22 countries. So from Morocco and Northwest Africa, across the Middle East, as far as Afghanistan and Pakistan. We also cover Djibouti and Somalia. So of those 22 countries, 10 of them have large-scale humanitarian crises. We are 
home to 9% of the world's population, uh, but 43% of the world's population needing humanitarian assistance right now. We have over 100 million people, 101.9 million people right now needing humanitarian assistance. Uh, we are the source of two-thirds of the world's refugees, just these 22 countries. And we are prone to multiple emergencies, not only the conflicts in places like Syria and Yemen and Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya and, and so on, but, but also, uh, of course, disease outbreaks uh, in addition to COVID. We've had 21 significant disease outbreaks in the, in the last year that we've responded to. Natural disasters, of course, recurrent floods and droughts on the back of, you know, exacerbated by climate change, earthquakes, and, and quite a few technological disasters as well. So your listeners will be familiar with the port explosion in Beirut port last year. We had trauma supplies on the ground within 25 hours of that, multiple uh, chemical attacks in the early days of the, um, of the Syria conflict. So it's a, it's a very complex uh, mix here. Rick, how has COVID figured in your work in the course of the pandemic? So I would say for the first year, in spite of the fact that we have five of the seven largest humanitarian crises in the world in our region, we were so overwhelmed with, with the COVID response and the demands to scale up, which affected all countries. I would say I probably affected, I dedicated probably 70% of my time just to COVID and, you know, to, to get the strategies going because, you know, our role here, and we worked through all phases of the emergency management cycle from prevention, preparedness, detection, response, recovery. So I've got disease experts. I've got preparedness experts. We've got information management experts detecting emergencies and then you know, strengthening surveillance systems, monitoring the impact, as well as the response side. So we have a comprehensive approach and we've worked on all aspects. So, you know, WHO early in the response developed a strategic preparedness and response plan that had nine initial response pillars from surveillance to case management to points of entry and laboratories and infection prevention and control and so on. And we rapidly tried to support the scale up of the response across all those pillars in all the countries, clearly with a particular focus on the vulnerable countries, uh, the, the low middle income and low income countries, uh, but also guided by the epidemiology, which was bouncing around the region a, a lot in those first, uh, particularly in the first 12 months. Thank you. We want to center much of our discussion in this conversation around Afghanistan, the crisis there, what's unfolding, and your active role here. And let's start by getting your reflections on your prior experiences in engaging with the Taliban and your experiences, your reflections on how they look at the health sector. I know Len has some thoughts on this also. like him to jump in perhaps right now and, and offer some thoughts about sort of the way that people have looked at the Taliban, those who've watched its behavior over the years in treatment of the health sector. Len? The Taliban seem to have had a really complicated relationship with the health system described by Ashley Jackson as evolving from attacking health care to co-opting it, you know, often allowing programs to operate, but demanding controls and hiring payments for services and other forms of, of coercive inter interference. And just recently, in the last couple of days, there was an AP story about administrator of the uh, a Taliban appointed administrator of a health program really kind of undermining some of the gender 
uh, equality within a health post or a hospital and and spending money on a mosque instead of drugs. I'm curious what your experience has been with the Taliban over recent years. Yeah. So, I mean, what I would add to the description that you that you mentioned is I would say their first <laughs> approach to the health sector when they were in power in the late 90s, early part of 2000 was neglect. My first visit to Afghanistan was in 2000 when the Taliban was in power. And there was you know, virtually zero support from the central authorities for the health sector. And it was largely propped up by the NGOs. And then as you rightly described, you know, there's sub sub subsequently attacks on healthcare. I think we're still walking what we're calling a delicate dance with the Taliban today. They've appointed a minister of health who I, I think is very open and a good listener. He's a, he's a medical doctor. He's a urologist. And we're, we're having to be, I mean, the, the, the Taliban authorities now see themselves as the legitimate government within Afghanistan. Clearly, the international community hasn't accepted that. Any funding coming in, you know, the international community previously had funneled an enormous amount of money through the health system and the Ministry of Health to support the delivery of essential health service through the, the famous Sahat Mandi project, which we'll come back to. Now, because the Taliban's in power, the major donors have frozen, have paused their funding, and the Taliban is confused. They see themselves as the government. Why isn't the international community coming in and providing the development systems that they did before? What's happened to all these big projects? So we are trying to engage them, coordinate with them, collaborate with them, but we're not giving them decision-making authority over any of our program and activities right now. So we are doing progressive advocacy on clearly access of women and girls to, to health facilities, clearly access, you know, continuing the training and support of female health workers. We are doing surveys on a, on a weekly basis to review the functionality of health facilities of concern. Well, there's some good news and bad news. 96% of health facilities are currently functioning to some level. Only 17% are functioning fully. 95% of female health workers are turning up to their posts in these facilities right now. And that's been a consistent trend that we've seen, a consistent figure, but around 77% of the health facilities have got stockouts. So that, you know, of, of essential medicines. So they're not working well. There are anecdotal stories of women and girls being reluctant to come to health facilities. So we're still in this negotiation with them, trying to ensure that there is continuity of health services that we don't overstep the mark and with respect to the donors and the United Nations, which officially is saying we cannot build capacity or invest in any institution associated with the Taliban administration, and at the same time advocating on these important gender issues and the access that women and girls have to health services and education, including training as healthcare workers. We'll come back in a moment to the, the healthcare system. I just want to follow up about the health minister. You said they've appointed one and he seems committed to the health system. One of the concerns in recent years has been that the local provincial appointed health in those days shadow provincial ministers and now whatever role they're called, but having a lot of authority. Do you see that health minister as having control of these people, even if not absolute control, control enough to make sure there's not gender segregation and that they will uh, follow medical protocols if that the minister agrees with? Len, I, th I think it's a bit early to say right now. We, you know, we've had 
some problems out in the east, certainly, you know, with one of the Taliban administration figures suspending mobile clinics, for example, in one instance. The short answer is no, I don't think the Minister of Health at this stage has been able to assert authority at the provincial level. And I don't think that that's probably going to be particularly likely in the context of, of Afghanistan. What we are trying to do is decentralize, you know, decentralize our presence to make sure that we that we have strong field presence. We already have staff in all 34 provinces through our, our polio program. But it is going to be a lot of dialogue on a case-by-case basis at the provincial level, as, as, as you indicate. And we're in this for the long haul. There's, no, there's not going to be simple decisions that are going to be made. Uh, you know Afghanistan. Decisions made centrally often are not played out at the provincial level. So we've got to be fully engaged in the discussions at provincial as well as central levels. I'd like to come back in a moment to this question around how do you achieve some sustainable financing for the health system that navigates this this problem that you face where you can't be capacitating the Taliban government, but you can't allow the health system to collapse. Well, hold on that for a moment. I'd like to come back. You were very successful, it seems to me, you and your team acting in partnership with other governments, with other UN agencies, to do several things very quickly as the Taliban came into power in mid-August. That was that included getting emergency medical kits into the provincial capitals, getting trauma kits for those wounded, involved opening air links into the provincial capitals after Kabul airport had closed and there had been destruction in many of these and it was really a a very fraught period and that you were able to win agreement a short while back around the third week of October, agreement to resume immunization programs for COVID-19, for measles, for polio, to win agreement from the Taliban to take that very, very important step. Tell us a little bit about how that became possible. How were you able to move rapidly across those different fronts, which seemed vitally important at avoiding the worst outcomes and demonstrating that you could move forward in the midst of a very chaotic and a very dangerous and uncertain context? Let me take take those three points then. How do we get medical supplies in? How do we ensure the continuity of health services with support from the Taliban? And how do we get their agreement for the vaccinations? So, you know, the second half of August, chaos. Our, our top priority, as you would, would understand, was the safety and security of our staff. We, you know, like all UN agencies and international agencies, we went down to just essential staff. We had, you know, we evacuated most of our international staff, had only six in the country. At the time, uh, the big international evacuation from Kabul airport was in, in motion. And we could see that health needs were, were escalating. We had a lot of medical supplies in our logistics hub in Dubai that we couldn't get into the country that we'd had prior to August 15th. And so what we tried to do was we tried to take advantage of all these military aircraft coming into Kabul to, that were going to evacuate people, evacuate people out. We were trying to convince governments to allow us to put uh, life-saving medical supplies on those flights. I won't go into the details, but it just didn't work. We couldn't get any medicines onto those flights going into Kabul. So we started knocking on a lot of other doors. We finally got, we got the Pakistan government to agree to put a flight from Pakistan International Airways at our disposal. We couldn't fly it into Kabul 
because of the this huge evacuation operation. So we flew it into the Mazari Sharif in the north of, of the country. But by that stage, there had already been the attack at the airport. Insurance costs for aircraft skyrocketed. That one flight cost us well over $600,000 just to get some medical supplies in. But it was a start. And then we li- linked up with the World Food Program and their, you know, their humanitarian air service, as well as the Qatar government, and we just pieced it together. So to date now, we've had around 12, 13 airlifts bringing in medical supplies. We've distributed to all 34 provinces. So that, you know, that really took a lot of piecing together. Secondly, about four weeks ago, the Director General of WHO and my boss, the Regional Director, and myself joined a delegation that went to Kabul. We were the first senior international leadership with the Director General meeting the the Prime Minister of the Taliban. And then uh, a couple of days later, the new Minister of Health was appointed and a couple of us met with him as well. The Prime Minister and the Minister of Health made it very clear we're not going to let you do anything with vaccinations or anything else until you get the Sehat Mandi Health Project going again. Uh, and then coming back, you know, for those listeners who aren't, uh, aren't familiar, Sehat Mandi is the backbone of the national health system, 2,300 health facilities funded previously through the Ministry of Health, performance-based contract with NGOs. All of a sudden, the, the big donors suspended their funding. This is the US, EU, and World Bank. Precisely. All of a sudden, the NGO said, we're done. We're not going to support these health facilities beyond, I think it was the 11th of September. So um, we, had to, we had to find a bridging way to sustain the operations of those facilities. So I think a, a couple of other donors and the UN agencies, we came together and we've got a, a quick fix, if you like. So for the month of October, the Global Fund supported UNDP to fund the NGOs to continue to support those health facilities. We had Peter Sands here about two weeks ago talking about that decision. Yeah, and it was absolutely vital. Great decision. Then OCHA, through what's called the Central Emergency Response Fund, said we'll put, you know, we'll put $45 million forward for the humanitarian agencies to take over because the Global Fund could only fund for a month. So OCHA, through the SURF, uh, this special fund, have given the money to WHO and UNICEF and we have essentially split the country in half, and we're taking 17 provinces. UNICEF is taking 17 provinces, and we're going to keep the, the facilities running for the next three months. Then what? So World Bank, uh, because of their internal processes, cannot support, still cannot support the government there. So they're looking at a couple of different financing mechanisms that they have, they will probably release funds to uh, UNICEF and or WHO. Either way, we'll work together to continue funding for another five or six months until we can have a longer-term support from the donors. So we're, we're piecing this together in three or four phases. We hope that the bank will step up around February and continue the support for the health facilities. And then by the middle of next year, We're again hopeful uh, and in negotiation with them on a regular basis and USAID about longer-term funding. It won't be like it used to be with the money channeled through the Ministry of Health or through any Taliban administration-run institution. It'll be probably be something more akin to what we do in Yemen, where the World Bank fund WHO and UNICEF to support a large proportion of the health facilities 
across the country in Yemen, and we'll probably use the Yemen model in Afghanistan. One of the big questions here is, as you try to create this sustainable structure that can extend beyond February and stabilize the Sahad Mandi system, these 2,300 hospitals and clinics, getting, getting com- concurrence from the Taliban is a critical challenge. Len, you had some thoughts on this, on this probing question here. Why don't you jump yeah, in? Yeah, well, I'd like, I like to ask Rick, uh, I mean, this is really threading a needle. As you said, the Taliban want to be the government. They appointed a health minister. They want to control, but the donors won't allow them control. Do you see a way of threading that needle that the Taliban would cooperate in a system where they may have some voice, but not control? And if and how do you see that voice expressing itself? To date, they've, they've been accepting of, of what we're trying to do. And uh, to the extent that once we agreed to continue supporting Sahat Mandi as a big priority, and believe me, there are plenty of other priorities that we haven't even touched on in Afghanistan and the health sector right now. Based on that, they agreed to renew the vaccinations that you were talking about earlier, Steve. The, the house-to-house campaign for polio, which is a huge breakthrough, because we've only had one polio case in Afghanistan this year. It's one of only two countries with wild polio virus. That's a big breakthrough. They're going to let us do measles vaccination campaign and scale up the COVID vaccinations, as you you mentioned earlier. We're going to have to wait and see how things evolve. And I think we have. I think we've taken steps to uh, establish a respectful relationship with the Taliban, a consultative relationship. We want to coordinate and consult with the Taliban officials but right now, we can't give them decision-making authority on any of the measures that we're taking within the health sector because the donors won't accept that. But we've got to coordinate, collaborate, listen, make sure their voice is heard. Uh, we're not going to shut them out. That would be the worst thing we could do. They're the only show in town in terms of governing authorities. So we have to coordinate with but not be coordinated by or, or, or dictated to at this stage. I just want to say a few things, Rick, to what you, the story that you've just told us. First of all, congratulations to you. Kudos to you for moving as fast and across these multiple fronts. But also kudos to Peter Sands, the Global Fund, and Martin Griffiths, director of OCHA, and Henrietta Four at UNICEF, and Dr. Tedros. I mean, these folks, these folks came to the table in earnest. They were in Kabul, and they have delivered in a way that has avoided a precipitous collapse. Uh, it may not last. I and mean, we'll get to the question of is time running out and, and how urgent to get to a stable long-term thing. But I, I do think that all of you and these other leaders that I've mentioned deserve a lot of credit for operating under extraordinarily adverse conditions and being able to pull this off. On the COVID-19 front, as I understand, you had a certain urgency also. You had about 1.6 million unused doses that were heading towards expiration in early November, early and mid-November. You've got promise of additional doses coming in through COVAX, I believe, but you needed to get that rolling. I mean, the, the percentages are under 5%, uh, far below 5%, I believe. And so the urgency of getting that program back up and running, it pretty much collapsed around uh, August 15th, right? They had ramped up to, I don't know what it was, 30 or 40,000 a day, and then it, it dropped dramatically. No, you're right. And in fact, all aspects of the COVID response declined after August the 15th. 
So we saw fall-offs in the surveillance, in the um, in the testing, you know, the operations of the COVID, you know, hospitals. There were 38 of them. And at one stage, there was only eight of them functioning. And as you rightly said, the vaccination. So we were. We were vaccinating thousands a day. That fell off to some days only a few hundred. The good news is that the health workers, and this is this is the remarkable thing, even though they haven't been paid their salaries and so on, they're turning up and doing the job as best they can. So we have, and you're, you're absolutely right on what you said about the expiration of the vaccines and, and others in the pipeline. So we have started scaling up the vaccinations. Back four weeks ago, we estimated to that we had to, you know, to, to avoid the expiration of vaccines, we had to get up to over 40,000 vaccines per day. We're still not quite there on a consistent basis, but that's scaling up. And, you know, one of the problems we have with, with, with COVID right now, it's one of many crises, one of many challenges right now. So the population isn't, you know, paying attention, the public health, the social measures, the personal protective measures, they're not foremost in the mind of the Afghans right now. So we've got a lot of work to do. We've got, you know, this big drought. We've got, you know, 500, over 500,000 people who are still displaced. We've got massive problems with food insecurity. We've got other ongoing outbreaks of measles and dengue and, and now, frankly, diarrhea in five provinces and all the trauma, all these multiple trauma events. So we're, we're working hard with partners to get our arms around all of that. In COVID, we've got to keep it on the radar screen, even though it's hard to do so. You know, no surprise, the Delta variant is circulating in in, um, in Afghanistan. So we're really trying to redouble our efforts there as well. Well, I want to second what Steve said and gra- congratulate you on all you've done so far in dealing with so many crises at the same time, including keeping health workers working, keeping clinics going, and also walking this line between Taliban voice without Taliban control. In the long term, do you see the donors buying into the model uh, of supporting the system in a Yemen-type model or other kind of mechanism that would have outside control but allow Taliban voice? I, I think that we will go to a, uh, a Yemen model probably in the middle of the year. And, and in the Yemen model, the money comes directly to UNICEF and WHO. So we don't, none of the money's channeled through government. And again, we consult, but we don't take direction from the government and we pay a lot of the, the government salaries. So, you know, again, it's always a delicate dance in those, those kind of settings. As to whether we'll get back to a situation of where funding will be channeled through government structures, I, you know, I think that's probably a long way away. That's ultimately a political decision. And of course, the, you know, uh, the litmus test, I think, for the international community on, on how we engage with, uh, with the Taliban you know, other rights issues, the rights of women and girls, uh, the rights of minority groups, you know, and so on. And we need to see, it's, it's clear that, that international governments and international donors are, are watching issues like that before they decide to engage more constructively and do in, get back to any sense of institution building in the country. The issue of women and girls, I'd like you to say a bit more about that. You know, you opened up by saying, look, the the workforce is in place and still able to function, predominantly women, the polio uh, vaccinators, predominantly women, and access to services by women and girls has not been shut down. But then again, we we have this outstanding issue of local Taliban control to begin to separate male from female providers, separate services, intervene in different ways. How do you monitor that? I mean, the health sector, it seems to me, is more favorable towards 
preserving the rights of women and girls, both in employment, but also in access to service as against the education sector, which, which has been very problematic. And as you might imagine, media and higher education, and there's struggles that are going on there. It seems to me that what was accomplished in the Sahat Mandi system and in the polio efforts was accepted by the Taliban during the, the years of war, where they had shadow presence in these provinces. So just tell us a bit more. Is there, is there the potential to preserve those gains in the Sahat Mandi system in the polio program so that there's not a serious regression in terms of women and girls? Well, you know, I, I certainly hope so. And again, decisions made centrally may sometimes not be, you know, borne out or played out at provincial level. Another bit of good news as we renew the house-to-house campaigns for the polio vaccination, the frontline health, female health workers are engaged in that campaign. So that's, that's another, you know, important uh, step. So, you know, I, I get the sense that female health workers will still be able to continue to work. I'm worried about the other end. I'm worried about exactly what you said. I'm worried about what's going to happen in the education system and the pipeline of young female, potential female healthcare workers graduating from high school and then going off to study to be doctors, nurses, midwives, and so on. That's where I worry that the pipeline may be shut off if we don't see girls' access to education being equal to that of boys. You know, that's been one of the success stories of the last two decades is the training of healthcare workers, particularly female healthcare workers. We can't have a rolling back of that. Say a bit about the security situation. We had the report today that ISIS-K attacked a military hospital in Kabul. It has done that before. A number of people killed and injured at that attack. Uh, this comes on the back of the attack upon mosques during prayer, Kunduz, Kandahar, obviously the big attack at the airport. How does this impact what you're trying to do? Well, it, it just adds another layer of complexity. I mean, it's a tough, tough operating environment right now. In some ways, well, in many ways, security is better than, than it was a few months ago. Uh, you know, the Taliban, you know, has committed to, um, you know, protect healthcare workers and protect humanitarian workers. When I tell my family I'm going to Afghanistan, they, they reel back in horror. Uh, in fact, you know, when we were traveling around Kabul, it was a, a Taliban security detail that was escorting us around. So the big unknown, of course, is exactly what you said, ISK, these terrorist attacks. I, you know, we feel pretty safe and sound with the protection from the Taliban. The Taliban administration needs the international community. So they are trying to ensure that the operating environment is as conducive uh, to us staying and expanding as possible. Right now, the UN and international agencies haven't been a target for ISK. I mean, they were, you know, I guess there was, you know, clearly the US military at, at, at the airport back in August. So we're very vigilant. Uh, we're very vigilant at this stage. They have, you know, we know that the, that I, ISK, they have the capacity to attack us, but we're committed to staying and delivering. We're very vigilant, uh, as I mentioned. You know, uh, we've consolidated all the humanitarian agencies into one compound from the from the UN in Afghanistan. It's a very fortified compound, but uh, yeah, ISK is is definitely the biggest risk right now. So, uh, to the degree you can offer reflections on what's 
this experience has taught you that's new and different what what would that be what what are your what are the deep lessons up to now from what what you've experienced in afghanistan i i thank you for the for the kind remarks you made earlier i i i agree i think it was great the way the big donors global fund and surf stepped in together with you know undp unicef and ourselves who to fill that gap i think that that having that flexibility was 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 absolutely vital i think we showed a, a lot of agility um and, and again another example would be how we pieced together the the air bridge to get medical supplies in i feel much more confident we can do this now in future you know similar circumstances we've we've strengthened our partnerships with a number of our member states with strengthen our partnership certainly with unicef and 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 surf but you're very reliant on cooperate active cooperation from the qataris and the pakistanis in particular right yeah and, and the qataris have been tremendous uh i i have to say they've been you know as they as you know they received a lot of the evac- evacuees you know I'm, i'm in touch with the ministry of foreign affairs you know sometimes on a daily basis trying to get supplies in trying to get people out trying to get you know getting aid workers out getting aid workers in they are just bending over backwards for us and and again it isn't easy for them either you know i i think again we we are you know len said threading that needle you know trying to maintain a a a constructive engaged consultative relationship with an administration that doesn't have the support from our, from the united nations or any of our donors while you know trying to engage them while at the same time having clear red lines about how you know what decision making uh you know we can allow them to have i mean it it's uncomfortable because in a sense you know they're perceiving us well who the heck are you to come in and run our health system and so you know being trying to be as diplomatic as possible and as sensitive uh as possible to their perspective and as i said you know i i think the new minister of health has been quite constructive in in the dialogue with him you know that's been a learning experience uh, and will continue to be as well as engaging with the big donors about how you address you know the risk of wholesale collapse of a health system and the advocacy that we've done on that you know we've got the word, we, you know we got the word out we i think the advocacy element of that like uh, and the way that we did the joint advocacy with unicef i think that that was important as well Now you said earlier that Emro in your the emergency office that you run in Cairo that you've got five of the seven largest humanitarian emergencies on your on your plate. You've got to think about Lebanon which is in a free fall. You've got the continued crisis Yemen and Syria and you've got Afghanistan and other situations. Do you think that what that suggests in terms of lessons learned is that your shop in WHO in Geneva and WHO in the regional levels needs higher capacities whether that's personnel transport finance quick release finance contracting capacity whatever i mean it, it seems to me you're doing you're doing extraordinary work in extraordinarily difficult circumstances across quite a swath of complicated crises no you're you're absolutely right we are our structure and capacities frankly are not fit for purpose to take on all the responsibilities that are expected of us um you know we're we're responding to a you know pandemic as well so you know we did what's called a functional review of our operations before, you know it was completed just before the, the the pandemic 
and it demonstrated that we, we didn't have anywhere near the staffing capacity that's been required. The good news, and even now I've got, you know, in my organogram, I've got about 100 posts and only 65 of them are filled because of funding gaps. And uh, probably not only funding gaps, this is, for many people, this is not, not an attractive part of the world to work in or live in. Just to give you, you know, a little anecdote, I, you know, I, I just a week and a half ago, I got back after spending a week in Saudi Arabia to do a technical exchange over the COVID response. And we learned a lot from uh, the Saudis, and I think we were able to teach them a few things as well. I got back. I'd been on the road so much over the previous few weeks uh, for Syria and Afghanistan. I thought, oh, great, I've got, I've got a whole week where I don't have to travel and I can catch up on a lot of stuff. I woke up on Monday morning to learn of this coup in Sudan. So that's just, you know, like, and so I, I get on the phone. I talk, I, I, I immediately call our emergency team lead there. She said, thank God you've called. The phone lines are down. I can't accept a call through my international phone, you know, uh, but I haven't even been able to speak to any of my staff. <laughs> anyway, so how we bridge together connect phone connections there over the next couple of days uh, to make sure that, that our staff were safe and secure and make sure that we could launch some sort of operational support was very, very tricky. But this is living in our region. But I did hear some good news today. I, I, I did hear that WHO headquarters is substantially increasing our funding uh, because they realize that we are critically under-resourced. Uh, under and I think, you know, Stephen, I, you know, we are able to demonstrate impact. I, I, you know, I can demonstrate, I can give you good figures where we've met international standards on humanitarian action in some of the toughest, toughest operating environments in the world, Yemen, Syria, Palestine, you know, and on and on and on. But, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of demand on the humanitarian dollar these days. You know, two of the biggest problems we have right now is sustaining donor interest in Syria, in Yemen. What what we're expected to do in those settings with very limited funding and, and deteriorating funding is difficult. But, you know, donors and the international community, they get bored, you know, they've had enough. There are other crises in Ethiopia and elsewhere and climate change uh, battling for attention as well. Len, we're getting towards the end here. Your thoughts, your closing thoughts? Well, I want to just congratulate you, Rick, on all you've done. As you've said, it's an incredibly tough job and, and with multiple cut crises. And it looks like if there can be preservation and a sustained health care in Afghanistan, you're on the right road. And I know it's not going to be easy because of this balancing act, but I really wish you well. Thank you. Rick, we close these, these podcasts by asking each of our guests what gives them hope and optimism. So uh, we're going to throw that question over to you. Having worked in humanitarian settings for over 30 years, you, you, you've got to be a half glass full kind of guy. And you've got to look for the positives. And, you know, of course, it's always the people that you meet on the ground, the people that, you know, the frontline workers who are absolutely dedicated to their families, the, the mothers and fathers that, you know, will go to heroic lengths to get their child vaccinated or get their child fed or get their child educated. You know, people just like you and me who are just caught up in extraordinary circumstances and, doing heroic things to serve their families and serve their communities. That's the thing that, that keeps you motivated. Of course, it's discouraging dealing with the, poli you know, the political masters and the, the military masters 
that are responsible for the decisions that led to these pro- the problems that these people find themselves in. But it, it gets a, it gets a bit cliche to say, you know, we admire the resilience of communities. And I can tell you, people in Lebanon, people in Syria and so on, they're sick and tired of being congratulated for their resilience. They just want the conflict to end. They want conflict to end. They want a chance, just like any of us, to, to bring up their families in, in, in peace. And, you know, empathizing and feeling an enormous sense of solidarity with those people. That's, you know, once the political leaders finally make the right decisions, you know, having a lot of hope in these countries eventually emerging. Thank you, Rick. And thanks for all the work you do. We're really indebted to you and to your colleagues. It's so impressive. And you've left us on a positive note. And I hope we can stay in touch. And as we move into 2022 and we reach these that next next gates, we'll, we'll, we'll want to re-engage and, and talk further. But thank you so much. And congratulations on the, on the gains you've put in place. Thank you, Rick. Thank, well, thank you. Thank you for, for, for your gracious words. But, you know, we, we always say the work we do, we feel absolutely privileged. Uh, this is privileged work. So thanks for your interest and thanks for your support. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet, on our homepage, at csis.org slash podcasts.